Today, we talk to Dr. Dana Mustafa, Assistant Professor at Erasmus University. In her own words, she's a cancer researcher focused on the molecular aspects of cancer. We discuss her passion for brain cancers and organoids, as well as why metastasis is so deadly. We discuss her publication on pancreatic adenocarcinoma and how comparing patients with varying survival duration led to a better understanding of the immune cells in the microenvironment. This is the Spatial Navigator podcast brought to you by Nanostring. Here at Nanostring, we believe that spatial genomics is at the forefront of discovery and translational biology research. We present the work that researchers are doing in the field and share our initiatives to engage and support them. Dr. Mustafa, it's such a joy to have you onto the podcast. Thank you for coming on and congratulations on the recent publication. Thank you so very much. Thank you also for having me in this broadcast. Could I start with your journey into research and perhaps how you ended up both studying pancreatic cancer and brain metastasis? Sure. So my journey to becoming a researcher is quite a long one, I would say. So I studied biology as my bachelor's degree in Jordan. And then I really fell in love with plant biology and with animal biology. So my immediate step after that was to take a master's degree in molecular biology and human genetics. And that's when I discovered my love to cancer research and with genetics in general. It was an immediate fall in love moment where I knew in my first day in my master's degree, I knew that I'm going to continue my journey as a PhD student. And that's what happened. So when I came to the Netherlands to start my position as a PhD student, I also knew that it's going to be only the start and then I continued afterwards. My PhD was in glioma, so that's brain metastasis. And when I was studying that as a PhD student, I get to know that uh, a lot of patients like breast cancer, lung cancer, they suffer from brain metastasis. And then I get to know that brain tumors or brain metastasis is unfortunately very difficult to treat. But I was very curious why some of the patients who have the exact same disease will make it to the brain. I mean, the cells, the cancer cells will metastasize to the brain while the exact same one in an Another patient will not metastasize to the brain. And that made me study brain metastasis from that perspective. What are the variations in the primary tumor? And that led to a very important discovery, in my opinion, which is the involvement of the immune system, increasing the possibility of brain metastasis for some cancer, at least. And the way I put it is the head that doesn't kill makes you stronger. That's exactly, in my opinion, what happened to those cancerous cells. So I always refer to my brain metastasis projects as my baby project because I studied that when I was a postdoc, but then I continued with it. And what I love about it is a complete different aspect that we discovered during that project. And then, uh, well, the cancer in the brain is one of the most deadly cancer, but the other one that's very, very deadly is the pancreatic cancer. So basically the drive is not only curiosity, but the patient. Well, how can we help the patient, basically, in treating pancreatic cancer or brain metastasis in a better way than we do now? And therefore, I became also involved in pancreatic cancer. Did that answer your question? Yep, it absolutely did. From what you've shared with me, it seems it's not just out of curiosity, but also like the need within healthcare and the impact that the research will have on these extremely deadly cancers, right? What would you say has been the most horrifying feature of cancer. And I'll add something to it, because from your publication on pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma, it was harrowing to me that for the short-term recurrence, 
it went from recurrence to death in a month. A recurrence happened, I think the median survival was 4.7 months. The median time to recurrence was 3.7 months. So in that paper, we studied two groups, which are the ones that surprisingly lived longer than 36 months. Usually pancreatic cancer patients after the operation, they don't live that long. And anybody who lives that long, then they are considered as long-term survival. On the other hand, we have the patients who do not benefit out of the surgery, even though maybe I should take you one step back, which is the stages of pancreatic cancer. In general, we have three stages. Those who come to the clinic when the cancer is small enough or in a specific location where it can be operated. So we call them the resectable patients. And about 20 25% of the total pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma. And then there are patients who have locally advanced disease. It means that because of the location of the pancreas, it goes nearby very important artery. And if the tumor is big enough to invade the artery or nearby the artery, then it's not operatable. And those are about also 20%. But we have a bigger group of patients who are metastasized, almost 60%. And they come to the clinic, the cancer is already metastasized. Those are not operatable. They receive radiotherapy or chemotherapy. Depends on the regime in that clinic. So from the resectable patients, there are patients who really benefit out of the surgery and those that they don't. This pancreatic cancer, it's called Whipple procedure most of the times. And it's a very, very heavy procedure. I'm not a medical doctor, but it's a heavy procedure. It's a heavy operation. It's about average six hours. But the patients also suffer after the operation. When we do that heavy operation on patients and they don't survive for that long, and we call it um, about six months is a short-term survival, it will be, in my opinion, very beneficial to know in advance if those patients are able to survive the operation, they will benefit out of it or not. And we were curious as researchers are, to know what are the differences. We have previously a theory that the immune system in both of groups is going to be different, and this is what we actually proved it, that the immune system in the short-term survival is different or the immune infiltration is different than the long-term survival. The use of word aggressiveness is very correct in this way because the cancer is aggressive. For me, the most horrifying feature of cancer in general is the ability to adapt. I think cancer cells in general, they are weak cells. They have a mutation or without, but they go out of their normal characteristics and they, they start proliferating. They proliferate quite quickly. So they are not the strongest types of cells we have in, in the body. However, from that principle, they are treatable. If they are weak, that's the principle of chemotherapy. If they are weak, then you can kill them well, uh, relatively easy. But the most important characteristic for them is their way of their ability to adapt to a new situation, ability to adapt to new environment, to new immune system, to new metabolism, to new pH environment in a complete different organ. How come, uh, for example, breast cancer cells are able to go to the brain, which is a complete different organ with characteristics that they make the brain the brain, and they are able not only to invade it, but also to proliferate there. And they will not be affected by the therapy, by the very aggressive therapy that the patients receive. Same example for pancreatic cancer. How come they are able to go to the liver, which is a complete different organ? The pancreas is very much used to digest or to secrete enzymes and sugar and insulin. And they go to the liver, which is a complete different organ, and they are able not only to invade it, but also to occupy it, to occupy the new organ completely. And that is something like 
an eye-opening for the features of cancer cells in general. Why is brain metastasis or in general metastasis difficult to treat? Yeah, I agree. I'd like to call it metastasis in general. It's difficult to treat. Yeah. It's not impossible, though, in some cancer types, but mainly because of the adapt. These are clones of cells that invaded a different organ. So they are adaptive and they become stronger. They know how to escape the immune system or they know how to escape the treatment that was given to the patient before. So they learn their lesson. When you talk about brain metastasis specifically, then the brain has another characteristic, which is the blood-brain barrier. This is natural barrier between the brain and any other organ, hence the name, blood-brain barrier. And that is, well, created in us to prevent microorganisms or microbes and a lot of other diseases to enter to the brain. But in case of cancer, it also acts against allowing the chemotherapy to enter to the brain. Even though we think that it is permeable in case of brain cancer and the brain metastasis, but it shows that it has a quite a lot of barrier ability. And that's very special in the brain as compared to any other organs. And that's what creates the curiosity in a researcher like me. How come the brain did not, or the blood-brain barrier did not prevent cancerous cells from entering inside the brain? like crossing that barrier. But again, it highlights adaptability of cancerous cells to manipulate, basically, the already existing system. Another thing that I found interesting is that on your bio, it mentions that you co-developed and use organ-on-a-chip models. Do you think that it will change the way that we do research? And do you feel that at some point it will replace animal models? Or is that the hope? Thank you for mentioning this, the organ-on-chip. I've been using the organ-on-chip since long time. So when I was focusing only on uh, brain metastasis project, uh, we developed blood-brain barrier on CHIP. And after that, we developed brain on CHIP or health developing brain on CHIP. There are several aspects to organ on CHIP. First of all, a lot of people develop it or believe in developing organ on CHIP because of the save of animal lives. I'm fully supportive of that. So to respect the animals and to prevent their sorrow of our research. But there is another very important aspect, which is the high throughput. So using animals can be very difficult and, of course, time and money consuming. While you use when you use a model, then uh, things become like with higher end, you can repeat the experiment so many different times very efficiently, which is very, very good for any cancer research we do, any research that we do. But the other thing is, I think it's important that the model you use, which is on chip or not, will represent the characteristic of what you want to study. In the blood-brain barrier on chip, we used on chip model and without, I mean, normal model. So we made sure that the model we used recapitulated the mouse model that we used. It was published in our articles. And then is it going to replace animal models, organ on chip? It's already replacing in some research. It's on the way. Not completely, though. I think one day we will not use the animal models anymore, but I think one day we will reduce the use of animal models. Remember as well that animals, they don't represent a human. So if we are studying something for human beings, the animals, they can reflect part of that, but not all of it. I think I had two questions that branch out from that. The first one is you mentioned that it re you made sure that it recapitulated the mouse model, but... As you mentioned later on, mouse models don't entirely reflect the human immune system. In that case, would it be better to have the model follow human immunity? Why not follow the human model? Or not a human patient, but a tissue 
Right. So you have a very good point on this one as well, especially when you are talking about, for example, the immune system. You can study the immune system using animals, but it will be much better to study immune-related cells using a model to reflect the immune-related situation. And that is probably more possible in organ on chip as compared to animal models. The next question I had is, for things like brain, when we're looking at behavioral changes, for example, when we're trying to study things like Alzheimer's or dementia, you might still need to see the behavioral changes if that was part of your study, right? So there are still some limitations. Yeah, so especially for the brain on a chip, there are quite a lot of limitations. The complexity in our brain cannot be reflected in a simple model. Also the physiology, there is quite a lot of electrical current in our brain that is not easily reflected on a brain on chip. But you have to start somehow, right? So for behavioral studies like Alzheimer's or any other diseases that they are not cancer, you still need as close model to the human situation as possible. But I think for those studies as well, the most important thing is the clinical information. So to collect information from the patients as much as possible. Dr. Vestafa, congratulations on the paper once again. Could you go over that paper featuring B cells in pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma, please. Sure. Thank you for the congratulations. To go over the paper, I think I first need to explain that pancreatic cancer patients, ductal adenocarcinoma, when they come to the clinic, they are already in three different stages. Almost 20 to 25% of the patients, they come with a resectable, meaning that the cancer is in a location and in size that the surgeon, they, they can remove it. There is an important artery next to the pancreas, and if the cancer already is very close to the artery, then we call them locally advanced pancreatic cancer, around 20% of the patients, and they are not resectable. The other 60% of the patients, they come when the tumor is already metastasized, and pancreatic cancer typically metastasize either to the liver or to the lung, or the most of the patients. Now, the most effective type of treatment is resection, to surgically remove the pancreatic cancer, and that is already in 20% of the patients. The operation is heavy. It's called Wibble operation. It's heavy. It average on six hours per patient. And the patients after the operation, the recovery time is considerably long. They lose a lot of weight and, well, it has some consequences. We looked into our sample collection, into our archive, and we found out that very small percentage, exceptional patients, they actually survive longer than two years. And for us, in that paper, any patient who survived longer than 36 months was considered as long-term survival. On the other spectrum, there are the patients who went through the surgery, but they really didn't benefit out of it, meaning they developed metastasis or unfortunately passed away within the first six months, and they developed metastasis or died not because of surgical complications, so because of the type of the disease, the biology of the disease. We had preliminary data suggesting that probably the immune system in both groups is different. And therefore, we studied or we concentrated on studying the immune system in both groups. We have 10 samples in each group. And when we measured the gene expression profile, so RNA, bulk RNA expression profile, specifically for the immune system, we found out that B cells were higher in long-term survival. Now, that was good discovery, but, you know, you have to validate and you have to prove if that is correct discovery or not. And we decided to do that with special biology, and we really showed that the number and the infiltration of B cells were higher in long-term survivals. 
and then we collaborated because the number of patients or samples of patients who survived long are very limited. So we collaborated with the, in Spain with La Paz Hospital in Madrid to collect more samples and to validate our results in an independent cohort of patients in which we showed that number of B cells that infiltrate to the dysmoplastic area of the pancreatic cancer is much higher in the long-term survival as compared to short-term survival, but we found them exclusively infiltrating in between tumor cells in some long-term survivals. We never saw that in the short-term survival group. Anybody who knows about B-cells, there is a body of literature about B-cells in all kinds of directions, so it's controversial. And then uh, some people suggest that B-cells are associated with a worse outcome. Most of these studies are uh, based on animal models. We were just talking about models. And that also highlight how to use the animal models or the organ chip models in studying which question, of course. But the latest literature is supporting that B-cells are like the hidden soldiers. They are doing something most of the time good for the patient, but we really need to understand it as a complete different level. Yeah, I found it so interesting that you mentioned the established literature was saying that B cells are negatively correlated with survival. But I guess that goes back to our point on how animal models may not necessarily reflect human physiology. That's correct, but it also can highlight the very important feature of cancer, which also relates to a previous question of yours, the heterogeneity. So some time ago, like about uh, like 15 years ago or 20 years ago, heterogeneity was not something highlighted enough in cancer. But the more we study cancer, out of my experience, because I studied several types of cancer, I can say that the pancreatic cancer is one of the most heterogeneous types of cancer. What do you think contributes to the heterogeneity? Oh, that's a difficult question. That's a very difficult question. As in biology, there's not only one factor, there are various factors. But I think the host microenvironment is one of the biggest factors that contribute to the heterogeneity. And then the other question that I had, I think this was when you were saying 15 years ago, we didn't know heterogeneity. And I think all the chemo drugs that came from the beginning were all very blanket kill everything together at the same time kind of treatments. But do you think it's that we didn't know or we didn't have the means to study heterogeneity? Again, very good question, but I think they both go together. So if we didn't have the means to study the heterogeneity, how come we will know about it? But once the mm. technology developed, and then you open your eyes, you are a researcher, so the results talk to you. And then you observe how much heterogeneity you have. It's not only within the patients, it's intratumor heterogeneity. Take any section of pancreatic cancer, the amount of infiltration, only immune infiltration, varies quite a lot in the same sample. And then all kinds of questions, why? What allows some part of the immune system to infiltrate in a location, but not in the neighbor location? This is very important study. And we didn't have the means to understand these characteristics of cancer. Yeah, that intratumor or intrapatient heterogeneity is another feature of ovarian cancer, which is the first podcast episode that I had with a researcher here that straddles between Singapore and Taiwan. And I suppose with the technology advancement, then also comes the knowledge on treatment advancement. Just thinking about moving from what we were talking about, very kill everything kind of chemotherapies to very targeted immunotherapies that we have now. Right. right. Or like precision medicine, where uh, the same target or one drug that treats various types of cancer that have a specific molecular subtype. 
a lot of researchers are sort of chasing after the shiny new toys and technologies of spatial. But as someone who has worked with both Encounter and Geomix and used them in conjunction, like you've done in other publications, what would you say is the place of Encounter? Encounter, it's fantastic for paraffin embedded material as nanostring like developed it for paraffin embedded material because you use only 100 base pair of the genome to study targetable or to create targetable expression profile. So I would say Encounter is very good when you have enough material because you need bulk RNA and when you want to generate some ideas. For example, are there any immune differences between long and short-term survival of pancreatic cancer? That generates ideas, support your hypothesis. I still use it today when I have a hypothesis and I want to check if the hypothesis is correct or not. But then it's bulk, like all bulk RNA expressions or sequences that don't tell you anything about the location. It just supports your hypothesis and that's it. But it's fantastic for the archive when we have paraffin embedded material and reasonably cheaper or much cheaper than any spatial biology. That ties in with, I suppose, what you mentioned in the paper that you've got all these samples which are archived tissue and in a very fringe scenario like your long-term survivors of tumor resection that you're not going to find fresh frozen samples of those anywhere in the world. So being able to work with and having those, the ability to work with is something that you appreciate, I suppose. Yes, absolutely correct. And then... Can you describe how you integrate Encounter and Geomix into the same experiment or have done so? Well, once we discovered, I mean, it was very easy in the B-cell paper because once we discovered B-cells are upregulated or highly infiltrated in long-term survival, then we definitely need to validate that discovery. And the easiest way of validating that discovery is by simple immunohistochemistry, right? But I usually say you, you answer one question and you, you raise 10 more. Like you have all kinds of questions where you can answer that by immunohistochemistry. But what you cannot answer is with which type of cells. We know that it's never solo player. It's not, biology is not monoplayer. It's multifactorial player. It's like a group. And we know that the immune system does not work based on one cell. It works like there is a homeostasis and, you know, it works together. So the question was, okay, we can find the B cells in long-term survival, but they infiltrate where? And with what other type of cells? And it was, for me, the most logical thing to do is to do spatial biology um, immediately to validate the discovery, because then we can target all of these questions in one experiment. We can answer where and with what other type of cancer, and uh, can we do statistical analysis on the limited samples that we had at the time? And that experiment opened my eyes to the characteristics, to the added value of spatial biology, because as I often express it, the tissue speaks to you. All of a sudden, the tissue that you only knew that you isolated bulk RNA from, it really became alive. You can not only see where the B cells are, but you can really see with what other types of cells they infiltrate. And one tissue sample became endless. If you move a couple of micrometers to the left or to the right, you see other characteristics of the same tissue that sort of with the encounter, you studied the expressions blindly. And now it comes to speak to you, which is fantastic. All of that is only using one section of the sample. So you use the tissue sections to the maximum ability because from one tissue section, you will not be have enough bulk RNA to study the expression. 
Yeah, the tissue speaks to you in more than one way. It's like the patient who has passed away, but given their tissue in the hopes that the problem's going to be solved, that future patients are going to benefit from all, all of that. Exactly. And I do very much appreciate that. So whenever we do an experiment in the lab, we appreciate all the donation from the patients that they give us the tissue. Without them, that will never be impossible. Therefore, the patients for me are the first people who I thank in any presentation I give. How do you look for good questions from, say, a cohort of patients? How do you look for a good question to ask? That's a very nice question. I think it depends on the type of researcher who you became. I consider myself a translational researcher. So not all, but most of what I do comes from or originates from the patient's need. They are in need in new therapy. So can we use the tools that we have to describe some new therapy or combinational therapy, even if it will benefit only 1% of the patients? That's the benefit for the patient. Long versus short-term survivals. Those are like questions that you know to ask them because of the observation. I think one of the most important characteristics of a researcher is to observe. That was told to me by my mentor during my master's studies. And it's one of the things that stayed with me you observe. The more you observe, the more you learn. And well, as I said, as a researcher, I'm curious, but my drive is the patient. And then just now, as you were talking about, you answer one question, but raise 10 more. What would you say are three questions that branch out from this publication? Three questions. One, to subtype the B-cells, to understand more in the biology of the B-cells, and to know the factors that they simulate their higher infiltration in one patient versus the other. So how can you utilize that to the benefit of the patient? A second question is, even though our paper concentrated on B-cells, but we also had some discoveries about the dysmoplastic proteins, like alpha-smooth muscle actin and fibroblast-associated protein. We are not the only people who discovered those, but now we found them in different quantities. And I think you also can highlight or you can investigate those proteins in depth. Those proteins are also used to subclassify CAFs, cancer-associated fibroblasts and pancreatic cancer. I think there is quite a lot to do over there. Part of me as a researcher is interested in metastasis quite a lot. I think if I choose a subject, then that will be metastasis because most of the patients, they pass away because of metastasis, not because of the primary tumor. Therefore, I want to investigate it. And then I will especially those with short-term survival, and they metastasize either after the operation, very shortly after the operation, I would like to study their metastasis behavior and the effect of the lake of B-cells in their metastasic ability. As you mentioned, one of the avenues suggested was the subtyping of B-cells, and even then the location of certain proteins and the roles that they play, and then also the subcategorization of CAFs. This all sounds like very cosmic language. Would that be a role for the new spatial molecular imager to play a role? Because now you've got the ability to see individual transcripts for these cells that you're looking for. So you are trying to know what I want to do next. (laughs) (laughs) The cosmics then is very attractive tool to actually study the expressions and the variation in B-cells. So you concentrate on B-cells and then you try to answer more questions. Actually, just to give you a little bit more, I think also because we use the digital spatial profiler as protein expression, but I think the readout of sequencing will be also important. Directing the question from B-cells. And now you were asking me like a few minutes ago from where we get the ideas. We get the ideas from the studies that we do in addition to the patients, right, to the patient need, like one experiment will lead to many, many more. I mean, we talk about 
pancreatic cancer. But if you want my brain metastasis project, I was doing the project or I performed the project when I was a postdoc. And I had a student a couple of years ago graduated with a PhD following the ideas that were generating from that project. And another student, PhD, was going to graduate this year, also following the ideas that were generated at that time. So, you know, you investigate to the depth and we try to cover as many questions as you can to understand more. Do you feel that brain metastasis and pancreatic cancer fight for your attention? Or do you see the study of both of them as a single activity? Important question that I ask to myself quite a lot, where I want to concentrate and what I want to do next. As I said before, I refer to brain metastasis as my baby project. Of course, when you are studying several types of cancer biology, then they take away from the attention of each other. So your time, it has to be divided into many different types of cancer. However, they also add quite a lot to each other. Brain metastasis, yes, it's brain metastasis, but it metastasis. And the whole concept of metastasis is important in any type of cancer, and that can feed a lot of theories for pancreatic cancer. So even though I have to divide my time into two subjects, but I think at the long run, with a helicopter view, my studies in brain metastasis projects can help me quite a lot, cutting edges for pancreatic cancer. What are some words of encouragement or some advice that you would give to a young aspiring researcher who wants to do very translational work and affect clinical outcomes? It's a nice question. Thank you for asking that. (laughs) Well, I think I have two advices. This is the era for translational research. That technology that's been developed in the last few years and where it's going made it possible to use as minimum amount of samples as possible as like paraffin embedded, which is not, it wasn't possible like five years ago or something. So my advice to them is to follow the techniques or to use the technique that can help them to generate as much data as needed. But then comes the story of analyzing their data. And I really advise them something that I don't have the skills of, which is using IT technology, programming technology. Use other programs that can help you understanding your data quite a lot. That's from the technical point of view. The other advice that is general and I keep advising myself, never give up. As a researcher, you, by definition, you are working with a problem. But as a researcher, you, by definition, know how to solve the problem. Your path will take you from A to B to Z, but it will take you. Don't give up easily and then continue solving the problem because it's going to be solved. So never doubt yourself. And maybe a third one, take a very good mentor. So mentoring is very important in any person's life, especially for PhD students. That's a great way to end off the podcast episode. Thank you so much, Dr. Mustafa, for speaking with us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Spatial Navigator podcast brought to you by Nanostring. If you would like to know more about Nanostring's product and panel offerings or speak to a member of our staff, please visit nanostring.com. You may also get in touch with us through LinkedIn, Instagram, or Twitter. The links to which are in the description.